And if you have your Bibles, just uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We are going to kind of camp out in, in the book of Ephesians this morning, Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And if you are joining us, um, we are uh, in the midst of a series where we're kind of working through uh, various doctrines in the Bible. And we're using our statement of faith, the 1689 Confession of Faith, um, and demonstrating how it captures various doctrines of the Bible. And so we have gone through uh, the Holy Scriptures and uh, what our perspective should be as Christians on the Word of God. We've gone through uh, last week on God and the Holy Trinity, and this morning uh, we're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God and we're going to be looking at man's responsibility. And so I would encourage you uh, to just prayerfully follow along with us. And I am quite aware... Uh, that this series is stretching for us in a lot of ways. It's stretching for me as I'm preaching it. Uh, and I also understand that the 1689 uh, is more, uh, a more comprehensive statement of faith than many of us uh, may be familiar with. Not uh, more comprehensive, perhaps, than the Baptist faith and message, but uh, certainly a more uh, comprehensive statement of faith. Uh, but what we need to keep in mind is that we should be lovers of God's Word, and we should desire as God's people to know all that God's Word contains. Uh, and uh, uh, godly men uh, have helped to systematize many of the doctrines that the Scripture has. The Scripture is a very, very thick book. And so when we compare something like the 1689 to a book as thick as the Bible, uh, we begin to see that it's quite slim. It's quite um, uh, uh, brief in, its, uh, in the, the words that it uses, but uh, we are conditioned uh, to be even briefer. And I think in our doing so, uh, we have lost some really pertinent, rich doctrines that the Scripture contains. And so uh, so my prayer is, is that we in unity strive together uh, as we go through this series, and what we see uh, is uh, lifted from Scripture. While we may not understand it all, we confess it as we see it, in scripture. And so this morning, like I said, I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read into Ephesians chapter 2, and I have a lot of ground to cover, and so it's your fault if I go long. But um, uh, I'm going to read, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work through this by God's grace. And so, again, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. He wrote these words to a church in Ephesus uh, that had all kinds of dysfunctions and problems, uh, and these are the things which he wanted them to confess and find strength from and be encouraged by. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Verse 7, In Him, right, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches 
of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. And skip down and look at the first three verses of chapter 2 with me. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Isn't that a beautiful statement? In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word, God. This isn't anything that we could invent. This isn't uh, anything we could imagine, Lord. God, it's not the way in our finite, sinful understanding of things that we perhaps would even write it, Lord. But God, your word is breathed out by you as we've seen already, as we confess as your church. And God, we are under obligation to believe it by your Holy Spirit, Lord, confessing that there are things that we just don't understand, God, that we won't understand. But Lord, strengthen us Use it to build us up for eternity. Use it to make us effective ambassadors for Christ Jesus in a world that rejects you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're jotting down notes, the very first thing that I want us to see when we're talking, when we're working through something like the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, the first thing that we need to confess as a church is that God is good. God is good. Right? Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says here. It's what we as a church believe and confess. Right? We saw last week when we worked through um, just doctrine of God stuff, God and the Holy Trinity, we saw that everything that is in God, is God, that God is his attributes, and we serve a good God. We serve a good God, a truly good God. He's incorruptibly good, right? And, and, and this is the God in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1 here that, that Paul worships. This is the God that Paul blesses, right? The, the word blessed here means, it means worthy of praise, worthy of praise. God's goodness isn't just declared in this passage of Scripture, but in the context of Ephesians chapter 1, going into Ephesians chapter 2, His goodness is experienced. 
It's experienced. And if you're a Christian this morning, you have experienced the goodness of God. This is the very thing behind our worship. This is the very thing behind the worship of the Apostle Paul. And again, God, Paul calls God blessed. And he does so because God's blessed us. Again, this experience part. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right? There, there's a lavishness here. God's not cheap. He's not cheap. He's not withholding. And this isn't a lavishness of, of material blessings. This is a lavishness of the, the stuff that matters. Right? The, the spiritual blessing is that God has saved us. Again, to the uttermost, you've heard me use that expression several times over the last few weeks, but he saved us to the uttermost in Christ. And it's in Christ, right? those of us who are saved by the gospel of Jesus, those of us in Christ, right? we're the ones that have the spiritual blessing. All those benefits that Christ earned in his earthly ministry are given to us because our good, gracious, triune God has applied them to us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons I want us to begin this morning by reflecting on God's goodness here and seeing how it relates to our salvation, to our union with Christ, is because a discussion about things such as election and predestination. One thing that's often missing is that the God who the Scriptures say is sovereign over everything that comes to pass is also a good God. Is a good God. And as we'll see in this series, in fact, we're going to spend the whole sermon next week on this, but in contrast, we're not good, right? In contrast to God, we're not good. On our best day, we're not good. We may compare ourselves to each other and think foolishly and pridefully, man, I'm not doing as bad as Joey's doing. But when we compare ourselves to this holy God that we saw last week, we're, we're not doing so good. So it's genuinely good that our salvation and the fate of the cosmos lies not with you or with me, but with our good God. And it's good because God's unchangeably good. And his blessing us in Christ is fixed on his unchanging character. So if, if, if you're in Christ this morning, you are so because our good God chose to save you based on his own character. Right? This good God set his perfect affections, we could call them perfections, on you before you were ever created. And he declared, you're mine, you're mine. And he did so for his own glory. He did so for his own glory. Now, I want us to see that. That's the second thing. The first thing, God is good. There's preliminary stuff here. God is good. Secondly, God receiving glory is to our maximum joy. God receiving glory is to our maximum joy. Just a selection of Ephesians chapter 1 here, verses 6, 12, and then 14. We see the expression, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of his glorious grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, speaking 
of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. If you know anything about catechism life, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and maybe even if you don't know anything about catechism life, you've probably heard uh, the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. For, For the Christian, our joy and his glory are not mutually exclusive. They, they go hand in hand as the, the Holy Spirit of God sanctifies us. But our existence, the, the way that we find ultimate pleasure is through our glorifying of God. John Piper, he modified the Westminster Shorter Catechism to say to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So from to glorify God and enjoy him forever to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I like that modification. I think it even better demonstrates the connection between God receiving glory and our joy. But Paul, in this passage, he says in verse 6 that God's making us accepted in Christ was to the praise of his glorious grace. Furthermore, he says that those of us who trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. He says that the Holy Spirit of God who seals us does so to the praise of his glory. This is, um, this is counter to what I think we, we, we often think, which is that we're at the center of the universe. All right? It's far from how we often read our Bibles, which is that we're the center stage character. Right? And while the Bible speaks of how a good, unchanging God in love sought and saved his people in Christ Jesus, a wonderful love story of of how God has redeemed us, right? It's not about us primarily. It's about the glory and the beauty and the supremacy of God over all things and how he's weaving together a people for his own glory and our realizing of that are confessing that, even though we don't understand all the nitty-gritty details about it, really does serve to increase our joy. God's working like this. It doesn't, it doesn't elevate his glory, although he is glorified. His, his, he's doing this work, according to Scripture, for his own good pleasure. We're invited as Christians to to have our joy increased by ascribing all glory to a good God. And the Bible speaks very clearly of how God being for his glory is to our maximum benefit. God receives glory alone. God alone receives glory for the salvation of his people. So God is good. God receiving glories to our maximum joy. It's to our maximum benefit. And let's look at it. Let's talk about what we often describe as free will for a moment. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Again, some preliminary stuff here. We're free according to our nature. We're free according to our nature. It's the significance of chapter 2 here. We'll see this even a little bit more next week. 
Paul says, and you, I'm speaking of the church of Ephesus, but certainly the, the word of God kept pure in all ages. It's living and active. This applies to us as well. It says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, and the sons of disobedience, among whom also we, were all, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. And just focus for a moment on that first verse. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We'll see this again in a few minutes, but Paul calls us dead. He calls us dead. What what does he mean by that word? That word means morally or spiritually dead. It's dead in alienation from God. That's, that's what's behind that word. In other words, there's no getting yourself out of this. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Right? The 1689 gives commentary to this doctrine in this way. It says, the statement of faith says, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself to be converted, essentially is what it says, to prepare himself thereunto. Adam and Eve, the, the first man and woman ever created, they were created perfectly free and capable. They, they, they were the only people in, in, in our history, to have ever lived without a sin nature. The only people to, to not be tainted by original sin. They had the capacity, Adam and Eve had the capacity to either obey God right, or disobey God. Now follow with me for a moment because Adam and Eve were, they were working towards something better than the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was never the final resting stop. They were moving towards something They were moving toward a garden that didn't have a serpent in it. And and, and this serpent, as you know, was attempting to cast doubt on God's goodness. This serpent was attempting to cast doubt on the word of God. Furthermore, the serpent, the way he really began to get at it with Eve was to make them lust for the glory of God. They wanted to be God. That's often, right? That's why I wanted to start with God's goodness, right? That's that's why I wanted to start with His glory. I think we miss that when we discuss sovereignty. But the, the first Adam, in protecting his wife, if he wanted to protect his wife, If he wanted to honor God, the very first Adam should have been the one who crushed the head of the serpent. The moment that serpent began to talk to Eve, Adam, being the head of his wife, should have grabbed that serpent by the neck, threw it to the ground, and stomped its head over and over and over again. That's what the first Adam should have done. That's the significance of why the Scripture calls Jesus the second Adam, because Jesus did, in fact, what the first Adam should have done. But Adam stood passively at worst. Cheer, or passively at best, 
cheering it on, applauding the disobedience at worse. He chose to disobey the Lord by taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and an act of sheer defiance against a gracious God who supplied them with everything that they needed. And since that act of treason, since that first disobedience, according to the scripture, we've all been born as dead men and as dead women. That is our position by default. We're dead. We've been born with what's called a sin nature. Whereas the Apostle Paul says, dead in trespasses and sins. Our confession of sin that we just did a minute ago talks about the the extent of our condition. He he begins with just our throat, the inner man, Romans chapter 3 there, and he begins to work out. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week, but the death is comprehensive. Isaiah says even our good deeds are like filthy rags before our holy God. We're not doing okay, and if we continue down this path of deadness, we don't get to the end of our lives and somehow have good deeds that outweigh bad deeds. We can't improve our spiritual state. This all means that that we're free according to our nature. And, And apart from God, our nature, apart from God, our nature is solely a sin nature. Apart from God, our nature is solely a sin nature. Our wills are bound by sin. We are enslaved to sin. This means apart from the intervening work of Christ, and on our best day, we aren't free morally and spiritually speaking. We're bound. We're shackled and we can't will it to the contrary. In fact, as we see, we'll again see next week, we, won't, we don't want to naturally. And we need to be brought to life, which thankfully Paul leads with in Ephesians. You he made alive. He leads with that. If you're alive this morning, it's not because you contributed anything to the cause. You and I contributed our sin. That's the end of the contribution. If you're alive, it's because God took your dead heart. He took my dead heart and he made it beat, causing us to respond in repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. And now, with the Holy Spirit of God living in you, you have a capacity that you didn't once have. You have a capacity that you didn't once have. The 1689 puts it this way. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, it's the state that we're in now, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. And by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so is that by reason of his remaining corruptions, there's still a sin nature in us, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but also does that which is evil. Very similar to the state of Adam and Eve here. In other words, we've been brought to a place where we're growing imperfectly and sinfully, but we're growing in our desire to know God. We're growing in our desire to honor God. The Lord has freed our wills. We're we're still plagued by corruptions this side of eternity, but he's given us the capacity to honor him. This was something that we didn't have the ability to do in our previous state of being enslaved by sin. You couldn't honor God before the Lord God Almighty saved you. Many of us, we don't realize that spiritual blessing. 
We don't, we don't realize that that is a benefit of being clothed in the righteousness of God. We don't realize that God's given us a capacity as it relates to our wills that we did not once have. We're free according to our nature. And God in Christ has given us, by grace, sheer grace, a new nature. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. So with all of this as a backdrop, right, the goodness of God, the glory of God, our, our being free according to our nature, but God in his grace and in his mercy putting us in this state of grace. So now we have the capacity to honor God or to dishonor God. But even this side of eternity, because there's still a remaining and dwelling sin nature, we do so sinfully and imperfectly. With that kind of as the backdrop, I want to spend just the remaining time that I have breaking down the sovereignty of God. And I'm going to use some words you may or may not be familiar with. Now, the first word that I'm going to use is called God's decree. God's decree. God's decree, it refers to what our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided to do in eternity past. It's what our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided to do in eternity past. This is also known as the hidden will of God or God's secretive will. I introduced this to you last week, but we see this doctrine in places like Isaiah 46.10. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of God, says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. R.C. Sproul once said that if there is one free molecule running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God's will will ever be fulfilled. The Bible teaches God's decree clearly that he's sovereign over all that comes to pass without being the author of sin at all. But in that, we have to acknowledge humbly acknowledge that there's mystery to that, isn't there? Right? Much like that of the, the Trinity. Right? Our, our, our job is to see this in Scripture, not neglect or fail to study it, not neglect or fail to believe it, even though we don't fully understand it. But I, I want to show you in Ephesians where it's spoken of as it relates specifically to our salvation. And as it relates to our salvation, it's called the covenant of redemption. Look at verses 7 to 9. Speaking of Christ in Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together and one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. That last part is crucial. Paul says, God purposed in himself. He purposed in himself our redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, and the bringing together in his timing, his people in Christ. God purposed that in himself. There there were no other deciding factors that moved God toward making this covenant of redemption in eternity past. And this covenant refers to God choosing a people for himself, for salvation, Christ accomplishing or acquiring that salvation, and the Holy Spirit applying that salvation and sealing 
God's people. God decreed this before everything. He decreed this in the beginning. And we see passages that support this. Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life. Look at this phrase. The lamb, speaking of Jesus here, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There, John speaks about Christ as being slain from the foundation of the world. The death of Christ, it wasn't a reaction by God based on his surprised disobedience of Adam and Eve. The scripture says this was the plan before the foundation of the world. Get Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, hear this, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Our God, who can't lie, says Titus, promised eternal life to the elect of God, to his people, before time began. There wasn't even time. Time didn't even exist. That means there wasn't even a night and a day. God had not declared night and day yet. Look at 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. It says, He, speaking of Jesus, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, the he that Peter is speaking about here is Christ. And we saw last week that Christ is eternal because he's God. But we also see this week that the plan for Christ to come in his humanity, right, to add his truly human nature to his deity for the purpose of redeeming a people to himself was foreordained before the foundation of the world, before even the fall of man. The Bible is full of this. It's full of this. And I'm standing up here and I'm teaching these things to you and I'm the first to admit to you that I don't understand all of this. I don't understand all of this. There's mystery here, and there's mystery because we're finite creatures. Right? There's mystery because we're sinful creatures. But, but far be it from us to reject these doctrines or ignore wading through these doctrines. These doctrines are given by God. They're given by God. One of the challenges with us as believers is that we ignore wading through biblical things that are difficult for us, either difficult to accept or difficult to understand. And in ignoring them, we reject. We reject the beauty of them. In our ignoring of them, we treat them as ugly. We avert our eyes to that which God has called good. We avert our eyes to that which God has called holy. We flinch. And instead of admitting that the problem lies with us, we ignore the depth and riches of God and his word and thus call those biblical doctrines the problem. Maybe not verbally, but with our actions. So if you're struggling, even with this series, and this series, like I said at the beginning, it's stretching for all of us, including me. Know that the stretching can be met with either pride or humility. If pride, you won't be conformed more into the image of Christ. You'll be hardened. If humility, God will grow you in his grace and in your understanding, in his own timing, through your commitment to him, through Lord's Day corporate worship, to your love for this local body. So let's be stretched together. Let's be stretched together. It's good for us to be stretched by God, by his word, together as God's people. 
Because what we need as a church, this church and the universal church, is, is a Holy Spirit-driven repentance. Right? We need to ask the Lord to forgiveness, forgive us for being neglectful of the good deposit that he's entrusted to us as Christians. Right? We need to ask the Lord to renew our minds through the washing of his word, his whole word. And we need to be committed body and soul to all that God's word says, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult. We need to be committed to confess all that God's word declares. We need to be a people that know God's word, that submit to God's word, and that holistically, again, declare God's word. So within, within a doctrine like that of sovereignty, we, we see the covenant of redemption that our triune God he made before the world was created. And while we can't understand it, we confess that the scriptures do teach it. We also see two biblical words in scripture as it relates to God's sovereignty. And, and his decree and his covenant of redemption. We see the word predestination, right? You've seen that word several times in scripture. A predestination in the Greek here means to limit or mark out beforehand, to decide definitely beforehand, to ordain beforehand. And in this, we see this biblical word. Again, our Ephesians passage, for time's sake, I won't read, but, read all of it, but I'll, I'll read you just a sampling in Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he's made us accepted in the beloved. Now, the scriptures really do teach that before God created the world, he, along with the Son and the Spirit, predestined his people to be saved through the blood of Jesus. And God didn't do this because he peaked in the future and saw that we would choose him. That's a foreign definition on both predestination and on foreknowledge. This would ultimately credit us with salvation. God did this, according to Ephesians, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, God saved us because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. It was only the will of God that saved us dead men that had no ability to save ourselves. It was his will. Now, that may be difficult for some of us, but again, we need to be... We need to keep in our minds, A, the goodness of God, and B, the fact that every single one of us by default deserve hell. God doesn't owe us anything. The wage that we've earned is death. Right? God is all sovereign. He chooses to give grace where he wants and to withhold it where he wants. And why does he do this? That's in his hidden counsel, in his decree. Yet we confess that God can do all of his holy will. Romans 9 says this, Therefore, he has mercy, speaking of God, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Right? Our God is freely sovereign, and his sovereignty, his predestinating, is based on his own good, unchanging character and purpose. Now, some of you may ask, if God's sovereign, completely sovereign over the salvation of man, is man responsible? Is he then responsible? Don't all men have an obligation to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely. But doesn't God's sovereignty contradict man's responsibility? No. How is that so? I have no idea. No idea. 
That's a part of the mystery here, though, isn't it? A great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he was once asked, how, how in the world do you reconcile this? And Spurgeon said, I don't need to try. And the person said, why? And Spurgeon replied, I don't need to reconcile friends. I don't need to reconcile friends. God is sovereign and man is fully responsible. Fully responsible. These are two parallel truths that exist. I don't know how they exist, but the scripture teaches both of them. Therefore, as your pastor, I'm bound to teach them. And as a congregation, we are bound to be whole uh, counsel of God's word people. We are obligated by God to look in the scripture to see them and say, I don't know how to make sense of all this, but I confess it and I believe it. That's our obligation. Anything less than that is a rejection of of God's good, authoritative, sufficient word. It really is. So God's sovereign, man is fully responsible. And then we see another word here, providence. We don't see it here in the text, but we see the definition of it in the text. Providence is really the outworking of God's decree. And this is, I'm closing us down, I promise. It's his guiding and his governing in time and space. We see it in verse 11 of Ephesians 1. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. Right? Things in our lives don't happen by chance. There, there is providential governing that's going on. The world isn't spinning into oblivion no matter what we see on the news. Right? We, we see that our very inheritance, according to Ephesians 1, is the outworking of God's eternal decree. What we experience here and now and even the free choices that we make are guided by providence. They're guided by providence. God's hand is even on the sparrow. He governs all things according to the counsel of his will. Yet, we still make choices and are morally obligated before God. A fatalist would argue, if God's ordained everything, nothing we do can make a difference. That's a fatalist. It's not remotely biblical. The Bible teaches otherwise. The God who's sovereign over all things, the God who's ordained, who, 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 who providentially guides all things is also a God who's ordained the means. Right? The God who's ordained the ends is also the God who ordains the means, and those means make a difference. And you know, why they make, you know why they make a difference? They make a difference because God says so. They make a difference because God says so. For example, God has ordained that... Uh, People will become Christians from every tribe and tongue through the preaching of the gospel. Therefore, when we preach the gospel, God uses that very action to build his church. That, that very action has a real eternal impact. Prayer is the same way. God uses the means of prayer that he's ordained to accomplish his good, fixed, eternal purposes. That's an invitation to have your joy increased by participating in the plan of the cosmos. The bottom line is that God really works through the actions, gospel-centered actions that he's called us to do. 
And he accomplishes his eternal decree through those actions in time and in space. That's providence. And then quickly, because I've mentioned this already, we see effectual calling. Ephesians 2, he made you alive. We were dead in trespasses and sin. Again, I read that to you, but God is making you alive. It's the very thing for you that allows you to even express repentance and faith. That means that your repentance and your faith are both gifts from God. Because apart from him making you alive, apart from him making me alive, we wouldn't even be able to exhibit them. Right? You exhibit, you express repentance and faith because God the Holy Spirit has given you a new nature. We didn't ask for this. It wasn't in our nature to ask for this, but God graciously gave it to us, and it's a fulfillment of his promise in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart, and I, and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of, uh, uh, of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. This isn't you asking the Holy Spirit to give you a heart of flesh. This isn't God asking you if he could do this work that he promised. This is our good, unchanging God bringing dead men to life. The 1689 puts it this way. Those whom God has predestinated to life, he's pleased in his appointed and accepted time to effectually call them by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature bound to, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come, get this, most freely being made willing by his grace. This regeneration of your heart is what makes you freely come to Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, it's all of grace. God's called you by his word. He's called you by his spirit. He's brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And there's nothing, again, that I contributed, you contributed to it except for sin. He made us alive. Now, in response to this, we, we live as free men and free women in light of the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're called by God to be committed to his word, all of it. Even though we, we can't fully understand it, we're to be committed to his word. We're to be committed to preaching the gospel to every person, knowing that our real choice is providentially guided by him as being used to draw people to himself from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. A few takeaways here, and then I'll pray. First is this. We should repent of not mining the riches. And this is in your worship guide, so don't f- fret. We should repent of not mining the riches of all of God's word. We may not understand all the doctrines in it, and some of it may be difficult for us, but we must confess all the Bible teaches. We're to be a whole council of God's word people. Secondly, it's good that our salvation is in the hands of God because only God is good. Our good God's sovereignty should cause us to rejoice. Third, God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility are not in conflict. They are friends, and we should confess them both. Fourth, God's providence shouldn't make us fatalist in the same way that the Bible's teaching on our responsibility shouldn't make us think that we're autonomous creatures. God governs all things, and our actions matter. Next, God's call to evangelize is really used by him to save his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then finally... Christians should be the most thankful people on the planet. We're Christians because God gifted us with salvation. How could we ever be sulky 
bitter, and stoic. And we go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, God. I know that I just went through a lot. And so, God, help us to process it, Lord, in a way that honors you. God, use your word to knit us together by the power of your spirit. And, Lord, strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.